I saw him conjuring an insidious Aquaman. In honor of James Wan's malignant, what adjective does James Wan turn into a horror movie next? Uh, recumbent. I'm Katie Rich, and it's recumbent. I don't know why, but I'm imagining a recumbent bike being uh, possessed. You need to find recumbent. Uh, like laying back, like a recumbent bike where you're like sitting, like you are recumbent on the couch. Not a word I really... get to use a lot. See, this is why it's like it's due for a comeback. In streaming culture, you'd think there'd be a whole new wave of recumbent. I think uh, maybe that's the name of my like streaming platform, <laughs> something or another. Recumbent. I'm uh, Matt Patches, mature man. My answer is flatulent. <laughs> uh, hey, it's me, Dave the Seven, and my answer is moist, but with a Z for an S, and maybe it's a lightning bolt, so moist. But then, like, you don't want to get shocked by lightning if you're moist. That'd be bad news. Why am I laughing so hard at this? Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 364. It is Pandemic 77. It's the week of Wednesday, September 8th, which is the day that in 1986, the Oprah Winfrey show premiered. That's that's a big date. Yeah, lots. The, the world has changed. What do you think Oprah's Oprah greatest contribution to culture has been? That gift that shows her releasing bees yes, on her audience? Yes, that was the correct answer. Bees! Ah, you gonna be, you gonna be! Bees! <laughs> bees. No, the bees gift. The bees gift is hard to beat. Uh, hello. David is uh, either in Telluride or on his way back from Telluride, uh, but he did record a Telluride dispatch for us, so you'll be hearing from David later on, but he is not with us as we speak, which means I get to ask Matt Patches if we have any reviews. Do oh, we? good thing Dave looked him up, because we do have a review. <laughs> Thank God Dave looked him up. I didn't. <laughs> Here we go. This is five stars from Aw Crandall, or A.W. Crandall, however you want it to do. It says, a review inspired by the Geonosians, so thank oh. you for that. While I do care just a little about why the Geonosians have synergy in a mobile game, I care much more about the synergy of these great hosts. The banter, the squabbles, the laughs, and the content are all top-notch. Listen to Fitwer to be a lover of the movies. The movies, but in Vin Diesel voice. The movies. Five the stars. Movies. Dig it. Love it. Geonosians. What does that have to do with the Geonosians? Oh, because I'm not done farming my Geonosians, and that was the threat. No, if we didn't no, get a review. No. Oh, I see. Well, it's not. Leave a review, or Dave's, because Dave's still working on the Geonosians. So there I was at the Sony Pictures Classics dinner that they have every year at Telluride, seated at one end of a long table with friend of the show, Richard Lawson, who's never been on the show, but I think we can safely say he's a friend of the show all the same. And uh, other journalists, Nate Jones of, uh, of Vulture. Um, and to my left was Roger Michel, the director of a new film called The Duke, new-ish. It was actually premiered in the festival circuit in 2020 and then was held over for Telluride 2021 in advance of its uh, forthcoming release. And to his left was seated Helen Mirren, who is the star of The Duke. Uh, but Roger Michel was there as a buffer between us, between the hoi polloi and the dame of the British stage and screen. And... He and I got to talking about all sorts of different things, had a genial chat um, about what his current movies, upcoming movies, about Spencer, about uh, just about everything under the sun, except for one topic, which I'll get to in a minute. But eventually, we decided to call it a night, and I, somewhat tipsy after one glass of wine at uh, almost 10,000 foot altitude, which is enough to send... Me and my light constitution packing anyway. More like a glass and a half. They were sneaking in some extra pores there. Wandered back to my hotel room and fired up the old Wikipedia machine to remind myself what movies Roger Michelle had made. And lo 
to my great surprise and eternal horror, I realized only then, minutes after this man and I had parted, that he had directed Notting Hill, one of the greatest movies ever made. A movie that I can see on the inside of my eyelids when I close my eyes, just for entertainment value. A movie that contains what many scholars believe to be the single greatest needle drop in the history of film or television. Of course, I'm talking about when Hugh Grant says, oh, saw the dog, I've made the wrong, mista- I've made the wrong decision, have a die. And then Rice Evans goes, yup. And he makes a little nodding sound. And then it goes, do, 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 Well, I feel so bad. Right. And they're all running on the, they're all in the car racing to get Anna Scott. Um, anyway, I could have talked to him about that one music cue for hours had it somehow connected to me that he directed Notting Hill. But to me, Notting Hill is a film that has emerged fully formed from the other, from, from the heavens. It came to us uh, on one magical weekend, 1999. And uh, for that reason, I, I guess my brain just never connected it to the name of a director and not in a way that stuck. And um, so here I am at the 2021 Telluride Film Festival. This is my festival dispatch. There's no ambient that is yet to be consumed, only regret in several films, some of which I also regret but had no choice about seeing. Um, just truly a broken man thinking about thinking about the missed opportunity. I may have to now arrange an interview with him on the pretenses of talking about The Duke, a movie I have not seen, just so I can make up for that missed opportunity and, and talk to him about Notting Hill. <sighs> um, anyway, tell your ride. Here I am, up in the mountains. Real pain in the ass to get here. Uh, and, and that's the case even if you aren't first flying across country with a uh, almost two-year-old toddler alone, uh, <laughs> which I think is, is one of the last great adventures that avails itself to humankind in, in our fully explored world. Um, what an ordeal that was. Anyway, it was still hard to get here from... California, and uh, tomorrow I will be leaving at 7 a.m. and arriving back in New York uh, after 10 p.m. So it's a long haul. It's easier to get from New York to Venice, but this year I came to Telluride. Uh, and uh, there were movies here. There are movies, there are people, there are gondolas, there are uh, well, fewer people than usual. Um, fewer people attending the festival, fewer people in the town. Unfortunately, this town has been really sort of, I mean, Telluride is a very wealthy place um they get a lot of influx of of cash tom cruise's house here ralph lauren it's uh, a well-moneyed festival in in addition um but the local population has has been hit hard um by covid and a lot of my favorite places to eat here particularly ghost town now ironically named place where i always used to get breakfast have closed permanently because of staffing shortages because so many people have had to leave town due to lack of work um but, you know, the, the festival is pushing on uh, and a strong crop of movies this year as the award season gets underway. I'm sure, uh, particularly as, you know, Katie, this is really her domain. Where we're all going to be talking about these movies for a number of months to come. But in the case of Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, that is not something I'm going to be complaining about because, um, I mean, Campion's first movie in 12 years since Bright Star. She made two seasons of Top of the Lake in between. She hasn't been twiddling her thumbs, but this is her first feature since 2009, and holy shit, is it a stunner. Uh, One of my very favorite movies of the year. We will talk about it at length at a later episode, I'm sure. Netflix is releasing it um, in theaters in November, and then on Netflix, either at the tail end of November, maybe early December, um, adapted from a Thomas Savage book. It is a Western shot in New Zealand about um, some brothers, one of whom is a Sort of a Daniel Plainview type, uh, if you will, played by Benedict Cumberbatch in far and away the best performance of his career, an actor that I don't always respond to very well, but he is just sensational here. Um, And he does not take kindly to the fact that his brother, played by Jesse Plemons, marries a widow uh, who is played by Jesse Plemons' real-life partner, Kirsten Dunst. Um, And she has an adult son, or adult-ish son, um, who's played by Cody Smith-McPhee. And uh, there are all sorts of roiling tensions between Benedict Cumberbatch's character, Phil, and, well, everyone. Um, And it is uh, truly a phenomenal adaptation of a book that has emerged from obscurity in the last two decades or so. Um, And I can't wait for everyone to see it. 
but that was not the only thing that popped here. And uh, there was also, I mean, Netflix had a very strong group of films. I'm loath to uh, throw too many Hosannas their way, but they have really come out swinging this fall. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut, The Lost Daughter, which is adapted from an Elena Ferrante novel, is really uh, accomplished and uh, catchy and spiky first movie. It stars um, Jesse Buckley, Olivia Coleman, who actually play the same character, Olivia Coleman playing her in the present and Jesse Buckley in the past. Imagine being a kind of person who could contain both of those women inside of you. Um, what a life. But, uh, and it's, it's a very hard movie to describe. She's going, Olivia Coleman goes on a Greek vacation. She's a writer. There's something she's tried to run away from. She's a little bit triggered by encountering Dakota Johnson's entire sprawling family of vacationing Queens, New Yorkers, um, who are loud and brash and, uh, remind Olivia Coleman's character of something from her past. Ed Harris is there wearing a little hat. Uh, it is a wild, a wild film um, that uh, I really that really worked well for me and takes some some bold chances and uh, I think it's a little bit a little bit more divisive than the Jane Campion movie, but it's no less interesting for it. Um, Netflix also has Paolo Sorrentino's new movie, the director of The Great Beauty and The New Pope, called The Hand of God, not to be confused with Power of the Dog. And um, and I, I, if you are around these movies enough, it can it might start to seem possible that you could confuse those titles. But uh, yeah, I, what I did not know before seeing this movie is that Paolo Sorrentino's parents both died in a terrible freak accident um, one summer in the 1980s when Diego Maradona, his favorite soccer player of all time, uh, had been shockingly, miraculously traded to Naples, where he lived, which is sort of like a low-rent team, traded away from Barcelona. Nobody thought it could happen. Um, And so it's sort of about this this coming-of-age story about this kid experiencing the the greatest highs and the lowest lows of his entire life, um, uh, sort of concurrently, and about how those spaces can coexist heaven and hell sort of living on top of each other uh, as he falls in love with the movies and loses his virginity in a scene that I assure you, you will never forget as long as you live um, and uh, all sorts of other fun misadventures. It's an incredibly personal movie that no one else alive to put it in the words of, of Spencer director, Pablo Lorraine, who I was just talking to. It's great to see a movie that literally no other person on earth could possibly make. And uh, that is certainly what the hand of God is. Um, and highly recommended by me. Spencer is is also talk of the town, uh, a companion piece to Pablo Lorraine's Jackie, with Kristen Stewart as um, Princess Diana. And uh, yeah, it's it's I didn't bowl me over as immediately as Jackie did. Um, I found you know it's, it's about a weekend. It's sort of like a a horror film, so not really, but it, you know, it's a, the Shining vibes are strong in this one, particularly with one scene where she's uh, in a freezer full of cakes and, and talking to the new uh, attendee who's played by uh, Timothy Spall. Um, but it, it feels a little bit more seen and done and super surface level than something like Jackie did, which probed a little bit deeper, I thought. But the surfaces here are immaculate and more than enough to recommend the movie, whether you're talking about Johnny Greenwood's Score, which is incredibly Baroque. It starts sounding like Phantom Thread and goes off on a number of different directions. And as the movie swirls into um, like Daphne du Maurier territory for a little while. Um, and uh, Claire Mathon, who shot the portrait of a lady on fire, shoots it just so beautifully. And uh, the performance is Kristen, Kristen Stewart is phenomenal. Sean Harris as a cook there is wonderful. Um, You'll be hearing a lot about that one. It's coming out in November from Neon. Uh, what else was here? Let me flip through the little guidebook I got. I mean, there are a lot of movies that repeated from Cannes. Kenneth Branagh made his own Roma, which is called Belfast. I am recording this voice memo to you guys right now in order to procrastinate from having to write my review of Belfast, which is a movie that, uh, you know, it does not stick at all. It feels like Roma by way of, like, The Wonder Years or something. It's, like, cutesy broad Dame Judi Dench and Kieran Hines who are both wonderful as his grandparents Kenneth Branagh is played is like a nine-year-old boy in the movie um played by a very movie cute kid and it's shot in black and white and Jamie Dornan's his parent his dad and um the crowd seemed to like it I am panning it uh there what else King Richard with uh 
the the Richard Williams, Venus and Serena's father biopic, uh, starring Will Smith as Richard Williams. Um, I was worried about Will Smith playing another quote unquote normal person after films like Seven Pounds and The Pursuit of Happiness. You know, some people are just too big of a movie star to pull off these down-to-earth characters. Uh, but good news, it turns out that Richard Williams not a normal person. And so Will Smith has no problem, uh, you know, making him larger than life on screen. His performance is actually more affected than Richard Williams has ever appeared to be in any footage I've seen and the footage they included at the end of the movie. But a very breezy 138-minute movie um, will be on HBO Max in November, you will watch it when it's on HBO a zillion times. It goes by in a flash. John Bernthal is hilarious as the girls' coach. All of the the five daughters are really wonderfully played. Um, it's it's a strong movie for what it is, um, and will probably do well in award season, um, even if it is not high cinema. Uh, we got Red Rocket here. You got the petite maman, Celine Siama herself, back in the game. Just trying to think before I wrap this up of other big premieres here. One that I definitely want to mention is The Rescue, which is the latest film from the team who made Free Solo. It's another documentary about extreme sports. Uh, in a way, it's about uh, the Thai uh, cave rescue from 2018 when the, the 13 people, 12 youth soccer players and their 20-something coach got trapped in a cave when climate change forced monsoon season to come unexpectedly a month early. Uh, and the only people on Earth who had the requisite skill set to go in there and try to rescue these boys were a bunch of 60-something British divers who felt from halfway across the world this unique and crushing moral responsibility to hop on a plane and fly to Thailand and do what they could because... For all of their will, the members of the Thai Royal Army's uh, Navy SEAL team were only trained in open water diving and didn't know how to navigate these caves. And so it becomes a sort of like Armageddon-like team-building, incredible movie. You will not believe, even if you know the outcome of the story, you will not believe how wild it is, um, the, the, the details of it. Uh, and the telling is just beyond suspenseful. I think it is, I can't say if it's a better film than Free, Free Solo, but it is certainly as, if not more, um, heart in your throat, intense. Uh, and the recreations that they have done in order to piece together this rescue, rescue mission with GoPro, GoPro footage from the event are so ingeniously done, so seamlessly woven in. <clears throat> it's really an incredible feat of craft. Um, that will be out later this year, and I highly recommend that you see it. I think it will probably do very, very well, as Free Solo did. Um, so that's more or less the report of what's going on here. Uh, it has been a... I mean, there are other things. There's a new Mike Mills movie, Come On, Come On, which I wanted to like a little bit more than I did, but it's certainly no offense. There was another Benedict Cumberbatch biopic about a kooky Victorian-era character. Um, that sort of thing. But we're off to the races for the fall movie season. Another film festival where people are sort of back in business. And uh, Oh, Joe Wright Cyrano. I didn't even talk about Joe Wright Cyrano when he, in the middle of COVID, went and Anna Karenina did it all, all over again, bringing hundreds of extras to Sicily and shooting P Peter Dinklage as Cyrano in a full period musical with music by The National. Uh, <laughs> shooting 500 extras, belting out a new national like dirge on top of Mount Etna, an active volcano. I mean, that man is truly, uh, Joe Wright, I mean, truly um, a madman, and we really need to protect him at all costs. Even if I would not say this movie is particularly good, none of the, the romantic entanglements of it really work. But Peter Dinklage is wonderful in it. Um, it's a role that... I think uh, his casting and his performance in it really transformed the text in a way that no other adaptation of Cyrano has done before. Uh, neat stuff. Anyway, I've rambled off for far too long, but um, and when I get back to sea level and talk to my other co-hosts about this, we and some of these movies, we can sort of untangle what they mean in the bigger picture. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be an interesting fall. Um, I didn't even get to Dune, which was technically Venice, and I. To the great chagrin of the internet, it seems, I uh, did not care for <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, and uh, we will get there, too. Uh, and Toronto is is all too close around the corner. But that's what's going on in Telluride. Um, trying to think of any other fun incidents here uh, that I can share. And I cannot. i got to get back to this review. I've postponed it long enough. Uh, 
hope to get home safe, hope to see my wife and my son again. <laughs> um, why I keep leaving Asa to go to these film festivals, I do not know. It's part of the job, but I miss him so much. It's crazy, uh, and I cannot wait to get home tomorrow. But, okay, bye. <laughs> Well, despite the fact that in all of our video game segments, I'm always talking about how I don't play video games. I've been playing a video game. Whoa. And for for a long while now, actually, like we're on like maybe almost a year of uh, with my kids. Most people uh, clock their gaming in hours. You (laughs) clock it in years. I mean. We're one year in. We play it for like 30 minutes a day sometimes and then took some time off and are now back into it. But we've been playing Sneaky Sasquatch, which is a game on Apple TV platforms. Think is it, it might part be of the another... Apple Arcade? Do you know? Yeah, it is it's part, part of the, the Apple, Apple Arcade. Arcade. So we have the Apple Arcade bundled into our all of our Apple subscriptions. So we have the wow. ability to kind of like get these games on our Apple TV on a whim. The trick with the Apple TV games is that you're using the Apple TV remote as a controller. So when you have a five-year-old, like it's not like the most intuitive remote. Uh, but lucky, uh, they like watching me play Seeky Sasquatch. So I have been playing Seeky Sasquatch with my children for months. Uh, there was what a, so is sneaky Sasquatch. Well, so this is where I'm going to bring Dave in because Dave started playing it, much to my delight. And I don't have any of the terminology to describe what it's similar to, but you're a Sasquatch. You start off sneaking into campgrounds and taking food, and then you're eventually given all these missions where you're trying to collect the pieces of a map that will help you solve a crime underway. And if you get past that point, you go into another storyline, and new parts of the world open up to you. So there's a ski mountain, and then there's a racetrack, and then there's a town, and there's uh, Dave, I'm going to blow your mind. I've gotten now to a point where there's a uh, a guy assigning us to hunt from various mushrooms around the town, and you can paddle up the river if you have a powerful enough boat, and you can Ooh. drive the ferry to the island. These are all things Ooh. that await you. Uh, so I don't know, Dave. What's it like? What what should I compare Sneaky Sasquatch to? Uh, it's very much, I think, like an Untitled Goose Game type of experience. It's casual gaming. Uh, the loop on this one, Untitled Goose Game. You're a goose. You're wandering into town. You eventually. In each like screen set that you have, you have a certain number of goals. Uh, Sneaky Sasquatch is uh, similar, except the gaming loop is uh, each day you sort of have to feed yourself and then also earn money by selling the food that you steal back to various bears and different animals. Yep. Uh, there are also animals that will give you quests about specific things to do that introduce new types of gameplay. But as you sort of expand away from your camp and further into the campground, and Alex Katie is describing like the story. Uh, it opens up uh, new gameplay mechanics. So you start off and you're just like this Sasquatch running around, picking trash out of trash cans and sneaking into tents as you do. Uh, but then as it evolves and you're able to get things uh, like disguises or car keys, then you could have like a racing game section. Or I just started the golfing period where there's mm-hmm. a, a large period of, of golfing mechanics and there's skiing mechanics. And so it's all sorts of different... Uh, casual light puzzling i would say um mm-hmm. with sort of a nice uh vector pleasant background with some 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 nice character design i think it's very pleasant it's extremely non-violent and non-competitive there's no way to lose or to win it and you're just kind of exploring the world uh and uh in the covid era like at the point where like sasquatch is like riding the elevator to work like my kids like didn't remember what an elevator was and there are all these things where it was like being engaged in a world when we were not engaged in the world not to that- uh, that's a lot weirder it. than my experience. <laughs> I I appreciate it a lot. It is a perfect game to play like uh, for thirty minutes every once in a while. It's a good you know like while you're eating game if that's when you get in your mobile games, toilet games if that's where you get in your mobile games mm. uh, because it's basically a mm-hmm. uh, I'm playing on like iOS uh, so it's a virtual uh, thumbstick. So basically, like uh, if I'm tapping the screen, he's tiptoeing. If I'm holding my finger down, he's running. Uh, and then buttons come up for different types Katie, of interaction. Katie, what do you guys interaction? use to play? The Apple TV. Sasquatch. So I'm using the, the Apple TV no, remote. I understand. With... Oh, you use the Apple TV remote. Okay. Yeah, That's with like one the of little my many questions. Pad. I have many questions. Um, okay, we should we should get you to ask your questions. I know this is a mini segment, segment, but I do, yeah, I do have uh, many questions. One, yes, of course, the interface of like using the Apple TV as a console, I find fascinating. And I'm sure this advent will, uh, you know, this more and more people will be adopting this, especially with, with kids. There will be, now be a generation who grows up with like the Apple Arcade being a very accessible uh, a portal for tons and tons of games. I mean, Apple Arcade is growing every week and getting tons of exclusive games. They're really trying to compete in a certain way you know, that I think everyone was afraid like Facebook and Farmville and all that was going to be 
10 mm. years ago, uh, but Arm now wow. is very much Apple Arcade, I think, competing with Steam or Epic Store or all these things that you do not know about, Katie. Um, yeah, I've heard or, of Steam. Or perhaps more importantly, Roblox and like Minecraft and like these more traditional things that kids who are older than yours are getting mm-hmm. into in a major way. And maybe even kids that are the age are like five years old right now are getting into Minecraft. Every kid who is like seven and above, I feel like, plays Minecraft and, and Roblox. And I wonder if you, is that on your radar at all? Do you feel, I don't know how kids get into this stuff, to be quite honest. Maybe it's parents who own consoles already uh, yeah. and, and kids kind of latch onto that and find their way into it. Dave, I don't know if you have insight here. It's astonishing to me. I mean, it, it is true that just massive amounts of, of children play Minecraft and Roblox, but I don't really know how they wind up doing so. Um, I guess I think a lot of people got consoles in the pandemic. Like I know multiple people who got a switch because they like wanted to have something to do with their kids. And like, you know, there's an extent like to which gaming is like different from like passive TV watching. So like maybe there's a way that you like want your kids to use their mind in a way. And also like if their kids are, if their friends are doing it. I am uh, playing. I've been trying to find games. I think I've talked about this on the podcast that are good for me and my daughter to play. Um, and and most of them are like simple platformers we've been playing because we have an Xbox. So uh, and we have the Xbox Game Pass, which means I can download all these like young skewing games and not have to pay for them, not take a chance on them. Similar yeah. to Apple Arcade. If you have a subscription, yep. you could go anywhere and do anything. And and you are in a mode for experimentation. So we've been playing like Super Lucky's Tale, which is this really poorly reviewed platformer from a few years ago that is just absolutely wonderful. It's like playing super mario 64 with my daughter um and and it goes down super easy because the imagery is very cartoony um or i think i've talked about playing carto this like mapping game um with my daughter and we've now taken a bit to playing uh when we're super duper exhausted playing mario party in front of my daughter because Mm. it is basically a mobile game uh sized tv game um but yeah i think what's interesting to wrap this up too is i i think a lot about a story that i want to recommend people check out it's from this guy andy bow bow i'm very bad pronouncing names he's the founder of the xoxo festival and the um waxy.org blog people just probably know him from the internet and andy wrote this amazing medium story it must have been like five or six years ago at this point um about kind of getting his kid into games and like Mm. how he wanted to do it in a way that was authentic and and spoke to his history of playing video games and like almost creating a respect for the art or like taking games seriously um, and learning where they came from, as opposed to maybe just plunging his kid into the world of Minecraft and like losing yourself to addictive mobile experiences. Um, So what he did was he, I don't remember if he kept all these consoles or bought them through eBay, but he started his kid playing Atari like 2600 and playing Pong. And he uh, basically like week to week, they would advance through the history of games Wow. By playing the old consoles and playing this the old sounds, games. This sounds like a whole Raspberry Pi program you should be able to buy. Or it's just like you get a You'd Super Nintendo program, you, you get a Raspberry Pi. But, yeah. but I actually think what's interesting about Apple Arcade and about the kind of mobile revolution is that you probably don't need to buy an Atari 2600 to run this educational program about the history of games. Every mobile, every game is has been emulated in... The mobile experience. So if you really wanted to teach kids like what games start simple, find a Pong type game, find a Frogger type game and find the right games that like slowly advance them into games as opposed to plunging them. This is what scares me about like, I don't want, we have not watched the Lego movie here at home. I know oh it's, a, it's a favorite of your kids, oh, Katie, big, but like big, big, big one here. I'm scared of these like super complicated, super evolved animated movies Uh, not because I'm like some sort of Disney freak who needs my kid to watch like Little Little Mermaid or something, these classics, uh, or even Cinderella or something far back, but I just like, I want them to evolve through the history of animation. I want this kid to understand like where it all came from so that they can like build the, uh, the, the movies that we make today are so complicated and so layered. And I think the games we make today are so complicated and so layered that so I'm I'm like, I I love the idea of starting small and starting uh, rudimentary in uh, whatever we're watching, whatever we're playing, and kind of building up from there. So I was really struck by Andy's blog from years ago. And I feel like App Arcade and Sneaky Sasquatch might be an answer to this, which is just like, start simple, start simple. And using your Apple TV sounds like a, a great experience. Yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, there's a huge variety of stuff on there. So I hope that, uh, 
I hope that you guys find the right thing. We also still have our old Wii, which I feel like I've talked about before. Like we've gone and like played Wii bowling in our um in the basement where the Wii is. So there's that too. Wii. This all sounds great. <laughs> My parents and I, I distinctly remember playing the first Super Mario Brother on the first NES with my parents as like a family experience. Like everybody took a turn at a level passing That's around awesome. the controller. So, <clears throat> but it's going to be interesting because like I think what patches you're talking about is like great. I think it's easier to do with something like animation because like honestly, uh, like your both of your children could probably play Mario 64 at this point. The question is, would they want to? It's like right. an awkward controller. It's like blo- blocky pixels. Yeah. It's a but character they don't But I think they, they would want to about. if they didn't start with contemporary games. I think if you started now, you don't want to go back. I find this experience with well, Xbox I mean, Game Pass where I'm like, oh, I wonder what you know the first installment of Dishonored is like. I couldn't play it. I'm just like, yeah. this is a broken, dumb game. It looks like crap. Like These games from 10 or 15 years ago, I just cannot deal with how broken they are. Not broken. They're, they're great. They're just yeah. like not up to the standards of, of modern games of that ilk today, and I, I can't play them. But I can play retro games, no problem. I can definitely play the Mario Golf game from the NES every day of my life, and I do. <laughs> Sneaky Sasquatch, try it out. It might ruin Mario 64 for your children, so it looks really nice. <laughs> it does look really nice. So your boy masked up and went to the theater, once again returning to the Alamo Draft House in the corner of their largest theater at their earlier showing of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings and bought out seats so I'd have a buffer zone all around me. (laughs) Is that necessary in a room full of people? I mean... If anyone had COVID for some reason they would and was not wearing a mask and was just coughing up a storm, wouldn't it get to you? Look, uh, from what I can tell from the CDC, it's masking if you're going to be indoors and social distancing when you can. And so, you know, that's what I'm going to do. And uh, especially for a movie that I would like to see succeed monetarily in the I box see. office, which it did. Why not? Wow, buy this out raises the an interesting question. How many people really showed up to Shang-Chi and how many people are phantom uh, Ooh, social distance tickets. spreader. <laughs> that question doesn't matter because <laughs> that question does not matter. We put so much to fucking uh, anyway. Let's. How much we'll money get... did it make this week? The weekend uh, seventy million some. Domestic? Yeah, I've, they're projecting that maybe at the end of four days it's gonna be it's gonna have crossed the ninety million. Last time I heard. Mm. So by the time this comes out, maybe we'll be closer to like ninety million. But it definitely it was bigger than Thor and bigger than Cats in America, from what I read. Uh, record-breaking though, Labor Day release. I've Not never seen more tweets of people being like, no one is properly talking about how good the box office for this is. People were very, very invested in properly talking about how... The people who Shang-Chi talk about box office on, on Twitter these days are just... This is- out of their Ex- minds. I've unfollowed so many box office analysts. Yeah, do not follow the box office conversation. It is toxic. Well, I think CinemaCon made it worse. It was like, what, last week or a week and a half ago by the time you hear this. And the message from movie theaters is we are open, come, everything's normal. But they're still, uh, you know, I still have to buy extra tickets if I want to social distance at a screening. That's not even an option. There's not even social distance screening options or anything like that. There's just a Shang-Chi that starts on every half an hour. Uh, So I bought tickets to uh, the earliest Saturday one, assuming that'd be best. Even before I went, I logged back on to see if people had bought tickets around me just to see if I felt comfortable. I did. I went and I checked it out. It's pretty damn good as far as like a Marvel uh, movie. And I think it's just like an excellent superhero action movie that uh, manages to sidestep all the weird racial things that Marvel has had a real problem with when it comes to Asian cultures and adaptations of shitty 70s comic books about asian cultures uh but i really like it i want to spoil it for you guys because i hope that um if you don't get a chance to go see it in theaters you only have to wait some like 40 days now until it uh, appears on disney plus so you will get a chance to catch up with this uh before the end of the year so i guess before we're gonna spend a little bit more talking about our pandemic check-in because i'm the only one who got to see shang chi but do you guys have any questions? I'm sure you've seen reactions to it and whatnot, but I'm I'm me and you know me. Yeah, I'm I your mean, friend. Here, here's my big question for you, Dave. But like the trailers for Shang Chi 
uh, worried me a bit because I, I'm starting to feel like the the visual mode of Marvel, no matter how much genre spin they can put on these movies, um, is kind of like it's wearing me out a bit. Like they all feel, no matter which cinematographer is stepping in, they all feel kind of the same. Um, and especially yeah. this one, like looked. It, uh, maybe it's because it's San Francisco also, but it looked like Ant-Man. And, and I find Ant-Man, the original, to be one of the flatter movies in the in the mega franchise. And I just wonder, like, where do, where did you see or where did you get the real spectacle value? Or, or am I thinking about the wrong stuff? I don't know. I, I value look. I value cinematography. Um, I value depth. And um, I wonder where this movie brings it visually if it does bring it visually mm. clearly for you it worked so yeah it's uh bifurcated pretty heavily between the beginning of the story which takes place in like uh san francisco and uh Macon and different real places and then we travel to more of the more legendary places uh which would be a wuxia sort of uh style film like a late 70s Shaw Brothers sort of Somebody feel. Somebody described this movie to me as a live-action Avatar The Last Airbender movie done right. Yes, yes. Wow. Uh, Whoa! The, the dragon power here is airbending, and it is something that you need access to the great dragon protector to do, and it is pretty bad at The fighting in this movie is excellent. Uh, the Bill Pope of it all uh, patches is in those confined spaces that it's you're talking about. Yeah. The Who's bus Bill Pope? fight. Who are we talking yeah. about? He shot Bill the Pope's Matrix. Cinematographer. He shot Scott Pilgrim. Okay. He's uh can do very dynamic uh action sequences if he can. Um and then uh so when this movie is in more of the Jackie Chan sense, where it's about being able to fight really good, it's about uh using your environment, it's about putting your characters on top of a building and then they have to get down without using the elevator on the outside. Like those sorts of fight scenes, I think are all done and staged really well. It's definitely the best hand to hand combat in a realistic sense we've seen from a Marvel movie. Uh, then it switches to the more mythological things. Everybody gets weapons powered by like dragon magic and stuff, and they have to fight a great <laughs> evil uh, that takes your soul. But not Bing Fang Foom, I'm told. No. Not Bing Fang Foom is uh, the great protector. He is a dragon. When you say uh, everybody, who are we talking about? Like. Shang-Chi is the, you know, the chosen one. Like, who else? Yes. Is, is it, like, other people who are, like, joining the fight? Like, the, what I know about the plot is surprisingly little. Yes. So, uh, Shang-Chi uh, gets, uh, we pick up with him in San Francisco, and he is hanging out with Aquafina, who plays Katie, his friend. They're valets. Their life is sort of, like, not going anywhere. Excuse me. They're- I believe her name is Marvel's Katie, according to the action figure. Marvel. Wow. <laughs> Marvel's not, Katie. Not to be confused with me. No, You're right, exactly. exactly. Marvel's Kate. Yeah. Marvel uh, doesn't own me. <laughs> uh, their families and their, or uh, Katie's family and their Asian uh, American friends are sort of like, you guys aren't doing anything with your life. And then suddenly uh, these assassins show up and try to take uh, Shang-Chi's necklace that he always wears around his neck uh, on a bus in San Francisco. And we learn uh, through like, um, there's a lot of flashbacks intercut throughout this movie his actual story, which is uh, he is the son of Tony the Young's uh, Wenwu, who is the Mandarin in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and they address that in one scene that I think is pretty well done, um, and who trained him to be an assassin. He also has a sister. He did not, his father did not train the sister because males. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, Shang-Chi decided when his father set him out on his first job, he decided instead to run away and now his father is hunting down both him and his sister because there's something about their uh, necklaces their mother, their deceased mother gave them that is important. Okay. Uh, and so once we get the father sort of uh, back in, once the story absorbs Tony Lee Young fully, uh, it becomes like a two-hander between him and uh, Simu Liu as uh, Shang-Chi as like the leads of this movie. They're both extremely good at it, at it and it's one of those Marvel movies that spends enough time on its villain that it doesn't feel like a villain. Uh, the, by the time they, those like, two like, are... Uh, like Killmonger style. Yeah. By the, well, I mean, he's definitely evil, but you're like, Tony Young's such a presence and they, his scenes are so well performed. You're like, I get why he's doing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He's got a very uh, sympathetic point of view <clears throat> if you believe that his way is the way. And he's basically a 
immortal warlord because these ten rings with alien power uh, give him. Well, they don't say alien, alien power. power. They they mm. say they say undefined power. Alien and power. Hmm? Probably they're alien power in the comics, and they say in at some point they hint that maybe when we found the rings in a comet. Uh, but they don't. When will the Marvel Universe introduce aliens? Uh, they have. That was a joke. Oh. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, don't worry. I thought they... Katie would laugh, but Katie just stood there. I was they, just doing the... nothing. She she was trying to remember if there ever had. I was any. like, she's I like, thought, surely I, I remember Captain aliens. Marvel. Wait, there was there a lot of makeup in that, in that one. <laughs> but yeah, uh, there's a mid credit scene that uh, poses some more questions about the Ten Rings and definitely point where this story is going to go. But uh, I guess to lean into what Patches was also a little bit worried about, the ending does, after we've sort of dealt with the human drama, elevate to a dragon fighting like a giant monster, tentacle monster. Hmm. And but it's not kind a, of desaturated. Not like the one in Suicide Squad that you like, not, not kaiju style. Not Starro. Not Starro. Uh, it's it's a little bit grayer and blobbier in the Marvel uh, vein. I like it as just like a, and here the fucks are bad thing, and it's like a kind of it just you exists. You like it as nerd ass bad. shit, if you will. Yeah, yeah, I like it because the movie starts where it's like we're gonna be like Jackie Chan, and he's only gonna use stuff in here to like the end where it's like, and now he can throw energy and go full Goku. Sure, I think it's a very good it's a oh, very okay. good ramp up. Kame. Um, so. My main concern is not really anything to do with the visuals, but like the superhero origin story vibe. Like you're comparing it to Captain America and Thor. Like I'm thinking about like Spider-Man as like the, you know, the kid in a city who has great powers. Like, does it not feel repetitive in that way where it's like yet another superhero origin story? Correct. Uh, Because I think most of it is not about, it's not the Western Marvel motif of somebody has passed great power onto you. It is a slightly more, uh, universal cultural motif, which is you have to accept both parts of your parents. That's mm. like the theme, I think, of the entire film. There's lots of crazy lasers and dragons and fighting and shit in between that, but it's not trying to do something bigger than that ultimately, which I think is why it works. Uh, there's a really early on action scene uh, that is very Avatar The Last Airbender, and it's like within the first three or four minutes of the movie and it's a fight scene that is also the beginning of a love scene and it is just once that worked i was like okay this movie is at least being confident i think the transition from more grounded to like dragon kaiju fight is a little shaky but i can't think about how to do it better i think that's just because they wanted to do these two things and so they just did them the middle part that mushes it together is a reference to other Marvel movies. So that's also what makes it feel weird. It's its mm. own thing. Then it really heavily depends on you having seen another Marvel movie. Oh then boy. it gets to be its own thing again. Depends that's or... That's where I always run into you get, trouble. You get bonus enjoyment out of it. I mean, that's, that's what I think I Marvel think if does you well, actually. For that part of the movie, um, I think if you don't latch on to that, that part of the movie gets real dumb because oh, okay. there's also a like a chicken butt character, chicken furry butt character that has no head named oh, Morris. In, right. In this movie, introduced in this movie. That's not a reference to an old. That's Marvel. not a reference. No, yeah. <laughs> but it's like, like, if you don't, if you don't latch onto the reference, the rest of the stuff that's sure. happening around you also doesn't make any sense, which I think makes this movie a little bit tough, but Aquafina powers through with her performance there. Uh, the person I'm talking about, who's a cameo from another Marvel movie powers through. So they managed to go over that bump, but it definitely is a bump. And uh, I guess just um, in a world where in this we would have got in a world where we would have gotten this movie in like the late 80s, this would have been a trilogy of Shang-Chi movies where the middle part was sort of like him reckoning. And the third part was the huge jet, uh, like uh, protecting the ancient things dragon fight. And the first part would have been like an awesome like Jackie Chan cop movie. This sounds more like a DTV movie from the early 2000s. Uh, in a good way. I mean. It's not. It's not unaware that that's sort of what it feels like. Right. I mean, I think that it uh, manages to be as goofy as it can be without. That's fun. Uh, breaking the bubble. Uh, this. This. Uh, let's wrap up on Shang Chi with a thing that people can skip if they haven't seen this. Like hit that thirty seconds advance button two or three times. But Dave, uh, I think people are really excited by Shang Chi. I, I. One thing that's interesting, and this is total brain worms in my brain. 
Um, I don't really know where oh. like the Marvel universe is going. And uh, you know, when Thor was introduced, when Captain America was introduced, hey, Iron Man, we already got we got two of those now. Like we could see it building to the Avengers, and that was really exciting. And that's been part of the momentum of the Marvel universe. And suddenly, I just don't know what like is there a phase four uh, Avengers event like kind of piecing itself together now that we've seen Shang-Chi and that we know Eternals is coming and the Marvels are coming. Like, I don't really, it's not as clear as it once was. And we do feel like we're kind of a reboot moment for the Marvel universe where they need to have standalone character introductions once again. And these are smaller movies and we'll, we'll eventually get to whatever Avengers or Avengers Endgame or whatever is down the road. But I'm not feeling it at the moment, and obviously they're holding all of the cards close to their chest, but as our resident Marvel expert, I'm kind of wondering, like, where do you see it going now that you've seen Shang-Chi? Is it, is it evident? Like, what is, what is going on in the bigger Marvel universe? Is there, uh, is there a future for Sibu uh, Lu, who seems to have really impressed people? Absolutely. By the end of this, well, by the very, very end of this movie, you will feel like Shang-Chi could show up in Avengers movie, and you'll be like, of course he's there. Right. Will there be Avengers movies? There's definitely, in at the in the mid-credit sequence of Shang-Chi, we learn there's definitely a team that's monitoring uh, space so and you, time. You're Who's saying the Fury shows up at Shang-Chi's mansion and says, Wait, can we spoil this right now? I mean, if you guys want yeah. to. If, this is the, really, this I is only care hit. about you guys. No, you don't. know I don't care. Yeah, the don't movie's, the movie's in theater. So at the end of the movie, Wong shows up. He portals in. He's like, Doctor we need Strange. to talk well, to it, you. Well, wait, from Wong Doctor Strange. The, from Doctor Doc, Strange, got from it. From Doctor mm-hmm. Strange. Mm-hmm. He takes them to Kamertage, which is the mystical place from Doctor Strange. Okay. And there he's teleconferencing with Carol Danvers, Brie Larson, and uh, Bruce Banner, who's no longer Smolt- Smart Hulk. He's Mark Ruffalo again. Uh, and I they think he talk- said Smut Hulk, and I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> what uh, oh, no. We might still get some hook at some get point. Get them on Olin fans. Uh, but uh, um, uh, but uh, they talk about the rings. Uh, once Shang-Chi uses the rings uh, in this movie, uh, something in the rings is sending out a signal now that's drawing something closer. And uh, Bruce Banner basically says, welcome to the circus, which is as close to welcome to the Avengers as we're going to get. Do you think they have to do Galactus with Eternals in play and a Fantastic Four uh, in the works eventually? Is this are we going to Galactus coming to Earth? Uh, that's one place we could go. I mean, to really answer your question, if I were to place a bet, we're going to Secret Wars, which is all these multiverses come together in one gigantic thing. Uh, I don't know when. I imagine that would be after Secret Hades Invasion. The multiverse I mean, of no, madness. No, I'm stretching my back. I got nothing. <laughs> Uh, She's pumped. But yeah, I'll see I, all this stuff somehow. I'll see this crap. Sure, <laughs> turn it but on other, Disney Plus. I, I do want switch. to see. I, I want to see Shang Chi. But otherwise, yes, Fantastic Four seemed like a good model. If you were to spend an entire phase building to a point where we'd just be like, "Oh yeah, the Fantastic Four. That seems to be what they're doing. Uh, with the you got Kang, you got maybe Galactus coming in. You definitely have uh, Reed Richards, smartest man in the universe, and Doctor Doom, yeah, smartest Kang, villain in the universe. So they're all coming together. But I do think that uh, Secret Wars might be the event that we're coming to. But Doctor Doctor Strange: The Multiverse of Madness is going to be big. Sure. Now that Shang Chi ends the movie with Wong, so do, is he going to be in that? We don't know. Doctor Strange is the next. No, Eternals is next. Yes. We're supposed to get Eternals and Spider-Man before the end of the year. That's Correct. right. Ooh, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Spider-Man has like Willem Dafoe in it. It's gonna be it's gonna be a big Marvel year. And, and Doctor Strange, Strange is like it. And Doctor Strange Doctor is coming Strange. in like the spring. Next month. Yeah, next spring. Okay. All right. This is yeah, Spider-Man's the alley oop to the multiverse of madness. Okay. You know, well, and also the-, <laughs> the, the the adios for Spider-Man, because we're done with the Sony sharing deal again. Oh man, I have so many questions. Do you think Tom Holland's gonna do another Spider-Man, Dave? Yes, for Marvel, I don't know. Mm. But like, why would Sony allow him to stop being Spider-Man? You know, contract. I don't know. All these guys tap out after a trilogy. Oh yeah, I mean, if he doesn't want money, he could absolutely leave whenever he wants. But if I were like Sony, like I'd be like, well, you're our Spider-Man now. We love. Wait, so he. So Tom Holland would have to keep being in standalone Spider-Man movies that are not connected to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's the deal. 
Correct. They Sony can take back Spider-Man after this. Uh, there's No Way Home, and then there's one more Marvel Cinematic Universe cameo or supporting appearance for Spider-Man, and then the Sony-Disney deal is no more. Seems like Multiverse wow. of Madness would, would be that opportunity. Uh, that would be an opportune place to see him again, yes. Or you just save that for one back pocket thing later in the future because that's your last Spider-Man, you know? Like, sell that. So movie. Marvel can't do Spider-Man at all, not just Tom Holland Spider-Man. Uh, correct. Wow. Not without Sony's permission, which the this deal expires. So it's very possible that um, you know, uh, that No Way Home is deal? huge, and they make a new deal and they keep going. But it it seems like uh, you know. Of the studios, Marvel has that, plenty of other things to do. Well, and of the studios that have Oscars for Spider-Man movies, it's not Marvel; it's Sony. So, why wouldn't you, you know, keep all that uh, going if you're still keeping it going good? Because I mean, like Venom yeah. is the only thing that's going to win awards anytime soon. Venom's well, what's going to keep the Sony Corporation afloat. It it, it better. Uh, speaking of, we could transition a bit more into pandemic check-in because Venom moved up. To make Wild. October uh, crowded, but basically based on the success of Chang Chi, from what I can tell, this uh, had the did not have the effect that I thought it was going to have a couple weeks ago, where everything you, know, you people... thought is wrong. No, that's not true. Cue that weird out song. I um... mean, every poll about movie going uh, says there's more of me's than there are of you in terms of hesitancy. Uh, about Excuse whether me, or not to I did go not back. show up to Shang-Chi this weekend. So. Fair, fair, fair. <laughs> There's more of me than people who are just going to movies like they usually went. There's still sure. a lot of hesitancy. Uh, so, and we're, you know, numbers wise, what are those still in the middle of a surge. Where do, you see, where do you see that? Uh, blah, 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 blah. There was a few that, you. there was a few that were linked out of Drew McWeeny's newsletter. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't cover CinemaCon myself. I just read coverage of CinemaCon. No, that's fine. And I don't, I don't mean to grill you on the spot. I, ju- I just, um, yeah, no, I, I think people are starting to figure out what is worth going back for. I think that's What's really an the, acceptable the big risk, question. Yeah. And, um, you know, Free Guy coming out was an interesting signal. People thought that, mm-hmm. was, a, that was success, but was it? I'm, I feel like that's the opposite end of the spectrum. That's a complete, like, new IP, quote, unquote, and is Ryan Reynolds a big enough star? Like this is a new thing that people aren't familiar with and it still made some money. So that was encouraging. Um, it was baffling to see Top Gun fly away to twenty September two. September just, was it baffling though? No, no, not September, May 2022. Oh, oh, oh May 2022. Uh, it was or baffling have you been pulling be... those strings all along? <laughs> I know. Well, it's not baffling to me according to my evil diabolical plan to never eat a shoe, but it is baffling to me <laughs> to see them worry i guess i mean this must be a tom cruise thing this must be a we need every seat filled this needs to be the biggest movie on the planet also this thanksgiving is... is a weird release date for top gun really it's such a like dad and kids movie yeah but it's like a i mean also coming like what like a month after a bond movie like top gun is so summery like it's so like american flag like it's going to memorial day which makes perfect i weirdly sense. think they don't have enough like uh, franchise pedigree or it doesn't have enough brand value to release it in this moment when I think a movie like Venom 2 will do pretty well. I think a Bond movie is going to do pretty well. I think Dune is not going to do very well for a lot of different reasons. One, mainly it's on HBO Max, but I think sure. it, these movies that are going straight to theaters will do pretty well because it's Dune big blockbuster well. franchise stuff that's been tested. Like I think Venom 2 could be bigger than Shang-Chi because it's Venom Two uh, and people know what they're getting, and it's worth going to the theater to see that. And we're now in a moment where, like these movies, it's not worth pushing anything because they're going to be as big as they they will be and would be. I think there's a lot of movies on the calendar now, like Halloween will do really well, um, and Ghostbusters, which I would have predicted would kind of bomb anyway out before the pandemic, is not going to do well. I think so. It's like we're kind of back to normal, and it's weird to see movies punt away because i don't think it can get better for them well it's so crowded right now though like the idea of like trying to get all of these eyeballs from the same people like there's a lot of daves out there who are going to be like really really careful about what they go see like you're cannibalizing each other in terms of like how often someone's gonna be willing to go to the theater so maybe they just move a little bit more that's why no time to die must have felt really bad this week because it was went from being like the thing that was happening in october to now like the week before it is venom and the week after it is halloween yeah. Like it got it got squeezed. 
I, and that's yeah, a, that's MGM. That. They, MGM has no other options. Like MGM needs that movie in theaters, and they put need it, it put it in September. Nothing's happening. <laughs> that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, move it up. It's already done. <laughs> that's true. We know that movie is done. In theory, Dan- that movie already came out. Somewhere, Daniel Craig is done playing James Bond. We just haven't seen how it ends. <laughs> they need to do what like the New York Times does, which publishes a hundred billion stories in the background that never make the front page. They just need to put No Time to Die in movie theaters and people don't need to know. There doesn't need to be it doesn't need to be like an A one front pager announced tons of trailers and hoopla. It's it a programmer. Like put, it's like an SEO play. It needs to be in the it just needs to be <laughs> on screens and it's accruing Google. eyeballs. Yeah. Is there is there a new James Bond movie? Yeah. Oh, oh okay. shit. I'll t- uh, buy tickets yeah. right now, yes. <laughs> What's this no time to die? I, I was honestly, coming to see. Honestly, the longer a movie can be in theaters, the better. Like, why do you need runway? Why? I mean, clearly you don't because yesterday Venom was coming out on October 15th. Today it's coming out on October 1st. And Wild. two weeks ago it was coming out on October 7th. Like, who gives a shit when the movie comes out? No one knows. No one cares. It just needs to be on a theater screen for people to eventually consider it. I, I, I've been thinking a lot about Dune and how I've been having just a lot of conversations with different people on different sides of Dune um, about like how they're spending money to promote Dune even. And it's like, everyone's, I think everyone's kind of not sure how to promote Dune at this phase, but I may, I may mention this too. That <laughs> well, I think, also not, it, not like it would have been easy to promote that movie no. in a normal time either. No, I, I yeah. But now like I think the Dune, 80s when they now I think Dune is like an Oscar movie. And, and if Dune comes out and plays on HBO Max for a while, and no one sees it, like no one would, because it's like, what is this? It needs really good reviews, and it's starting to get them, right? And like, yeah. it could actually be an Oscar contender, and it will make money in theaters if it's an Oscar contender, because people will eventually find time to go see it in theaters in January, right? Yeah, that's a good point. That's the huge financial value of the Oscars, is that it gives movies a really, really long tail. Yeah, fascinating. But you know I what? Like your, I like your case that like movies should just play in theaters for right. eight months the way they did in the 80s. Like, why not? Like... Why not? Especially if the pipeline is still so jammed up that there's not that much new stuff to put in there. I'm yet, I guess it's theaters choosing to play them and they needing to make space and needing to make a yeah. promise of screens. And that's the weird competitive element yeah. that fucks people over. But and yeah, it's hard it to fall like with so much delayed stuff all colliding into each other. There's not going to be a ton coming out even in December, I don't think. We have West Side Story. We have Spider-Man. Um, but it seems like these movies could play for months. Uh, there's just so, too many movies right now. That's the problem. As you said, it's all backed up and like malignant comes out this Friday and no one is talking about it and no one will talk about it. A new James Wan horror movie. Everyone's going to watch it at home. It'll make a ton of money. No, it won't. You don't think horror movies have been like the conjuring did not make a lot of money. Well, the conjuring is also very bad. I thought the but Conjuring also did, playing at did home. well enough in theaters, despite the HBO Max thing. Am I, I mean, remember that Place wrong? Two did well, but yeah, but it didn't have it wasn't streaming. Yeah, it also didn't do well enough that they're releasing Top Gun Two. So well is relative. Well, no, I see. I don't think that's a Paramount thing. I think it's a Tom Cruise thing. Okay, Jackass. Now that should be coming. I mean, Jackass, you move because there's too many movies, and that one is small. And that's Jackass is just case put 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 to go to the put theater. on street. Why is it on stream? Why it should have Fuck always you, been on, on the biggest theaters. It should be an IMAX. It should be. It should be <laughs> Don't projected against the biggest building. Um, I remember uh, Jackass 3D when they're using that. Uh, I mean, I love the Jackass movies. Don't get me wrong, but no, Jackass does not be, need to be seen in IMAX. How dare you? <laughs> it should be in museums. Um, <laughs> I I, I want to wrap this segment up by Katie. You and I have seen a movie that is on streaming, that is not playing in theaters from what my understanding, that could very well be an Oscar movie, but won't be because there's just too many movies. Uh, the movie is Worth, and it stars Michael Keaton. It stars Stanley Tucci. It stars, uh, what's her name? Amy Ryan. Amy Ryan, yes. <laughs> uh, and it is a small little movie that played at Sundance two years ago. It's finally yeah. coming out. I assume because of the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, which that is seems to be the kind idea. of what is the movie, that is what it's about. Michael Keaton plays the guy who is in charge of deciding like who get, like how much they're going to pay the victim's families. He's um, in charge of helping the airlines not go bankrupt right. so that people are offered a settlement backed by the U.S. government instead of being able to sue the airlines into oblivion. 
So it is a morally questionable role that he's taken on. And he's like, I relish it. I want to be the guy who figures this out. And he has to figure out the Because he thinks it's noble life. too. Like he wants he to does. And but he out. like the movie is about him kind of like figuring out like what the actual like human stakes of something like that are, but like not in a preachy way about like lawyer gets a heart of gold. It's such a good movie. We talked about it on Little Gold Men last week too, if you want to hear more about it. And like Netflix just debuted all these movies at Telluride that they're going to be talking about for Oscar season all year. And like, they're doing really interesting stuff and they've got good movies coming, but it just sucks that they have this great movie that is just going to sit there uh, and they're not going to do enough with it because it should win Michael Keaton an Oscar. It is just a really touching drama. It is kind of conventional. You're right in that way. It feels like a late nineties or like mid nineties movie. Stanley Tucci plays you know, the guy who's standing up for the families. And it's like, think about what you're doing, putting the, putting a number on the people's lives here and like but it forcing also feels them to like, think deeper. It also feels like Spotlight, which it had does, Stanley yes. Tucci and Michael Keaton in it and won Best Picture six years ago. Wait, Stanley Tucci was in yeah. Spotlight? Was he a victim? No, like, he, he was a like a lawyer. Hit? He's oh. got like a really like, like Don't messy desk lawyer. Oh, shit. Yeah, um, I, I'm this, not saying I remember Spotlight great, but I know he's in it. This movie was directed by um, Sarah... Colangelo, I believe is Colan- her name. I and think it's Colangelo. Colangelo. Uh, she directed The Kindergarten Teacher, which is a really, again, like a little movie that didn't play to enough people, I think, that out of Sundance. I- I'm frustrated on her behalf. It's written by yeah. um, Max Bornstein, who has written uh, Kong Skull Island, the Godzilla <laughs> movies, like has not done a movie like this. And it's so fascinating to see him. I don't know. Maybe this was a spec script, a passion project of his. I'm very he curious. He uses Godzilla read. bucks to make it happen. Very possible. But this is just, it's such a great little tiny movie with really strong performances where Michael really Keaton has movie. to like go out to people's houses and talk to real people. And I don't know. It's its lived in. It's its felt. And I, I am not going to watch very much 9-11 documentary. Like there are 800 9-11 documentaries coming out in the next two weeks that I will not be watching. I cannot yeah. do it. I don't care. I just like, I can't relive it. I can't go there. I spent a lot of time in high school thinking about it and like performing vigils. And it was just like this moment. I lived with this moment for a long time. I can't go there with like weird, never forget type documentaries. Um, what I can watch is a really deeply felt drama about something, the aftermath. It's so the aftermath is so much what we'll be talking about after yeah. this anniversary. I hope, I hope we dwell on it and, and think a lot about it and what happened after the attacks and how culture radically changed. And I think that this movie gets ahead of it. It's a, it's a really interesting conversation and, and everyone is really good in it. No one promoted this movie. No one is talking about it. It's so good. Yep. And Where then I'm, you? Glad Dave, I'm glad David's not here because he probably hated it. And uh, I'm just hearing him in the back of my head. David, if you hated Worth, uh, make a tweet or something. When they built the ladder to heaven. <laughs> oh, man. There were a lot of, like, albums. Uh, that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Patches, would you like to tell people what we're watching next week? Yes, I have decided that we are going to watch Adam's Family Values. I bonus would be to watch both Adam's Family movies this week so that we could talk about them. But if you can only watch one, I would actually recommend you jump straight to Adam's Family Values. These are the two movies uh, from the early 90s directed by, uh, I was going to say Barry Levinson. That is not correct. Uh, who am I thinking of? I said it before the podcast. Barry Sonnenfeld. Barry Sonnenfeld. Barry Sonnenfeld. Uh, director of Schmigadoon. Um, yeah, why are we watching these movies? Because I wanna. And there's really nothing coming out in September. We're getting ahead of Thanksgiving. Adam's Family Values, a great Thanksgiving movie about having a kid who runs around and makes life hard. Um, so we're going to watch the Adam's Family movies. David uh, doesn't isn't know there, this yet, isn't so there an uh, Adam's uh, animated Adam's Family? Uh, That's true. Sequel coming, coming out soon. Straight to streaming. I think Amazon picked that Adam's Family. I should watch those too. Those are written by um, the guys who did uh, Benji and Dan, who did the Pikachu movie. Um, so oh, maybe which you, I like. Your kids, you know, really I like, like the Adam's Family. Yeah, I think your kids will jump on Adam's Family. The new Adam's Family animated one is like a road trip movie. So is the first funny. one on Amazon? I, I've never seen the first one, so maybe that's the way that we will... Uh, Just watch all Adam's Family content. Watch the ABC Family wow. TV movies. Watch the... I don't know. What other Adam's Family 
stuff is there? Read the co- comic strips in the lead up to this episode. No, I don't know if you need to read the comic strips. Watch that uh, video of Oscar Isaac Gomez kissing Jessica Chastain's arm on the red carpet. That's a good one. That was the actual peg for this Adams Family revisit. It's good, good content. Anyway, um, Pl- plug your other podcast and then our oh, website. Oh, wait, and then we'll is this the end of the? Yeah, the, yeah, this yeah, is the, the end, end of the show. Yes, yes. I met Patches. Read Polygon. Uh, yeah, actually. Oh wait, I wanted to plug two things. One, I because I forgot to mention this. Uh, during the during the pandemic check-in, but someone was tweeting about this great site. It is called microcovid.org. It made me think a lot about you, Dave, and something a conversation we were having last week about just like knowing really specifically what's going on in like your town, your area, how you should be feeling. It is basically a risk calculator. It is ta- taking into consideration cases in your area. What are you? Where are you going? What do you want to go to the movies? You want to wear a mask? Like, what are you doing? How are you living your life? And what is the true risk calculation of going out and living life? I thought that was a really interesting little program build that these people have put together. Great project. Microcovid.org. I would check that out. Um, They're not paying me. I wish they were. Pluto TV. You also know our number. Uh, And I would also plug my other podcast, Galaxy Brains, this week. Dave Schilling and our guest host, Maggie Mae Fish, are interviewing... Jean Luen Yang, who has kind of reinvented Shang-Chi in the Marvel comics. Uh, it should be a fascinating conversation because Jean is an amazing storyteller and comic book artist. And he actually did the Avatar comics. If you are a Republic City Dispatch listener, I believe he was working on comics that we talked about on the show ages ago. He is now running point on Shang-Chi, so he's going to have a lot of interesting things to say about uh, Asian-American representation in comic books, which was extremely poor back when uh, Shang-Chi was invented and reclaiming that a bit, and which the movie does too. So go listen to that. Should be fun. And I'm Dave Gonzalez. Uh, You could follow me on Twitter at DA7E. You could listen to the entirety of Lost if you search for the Storm Lost Rewatch podcast. You made it. Yeah, we did it. We did it. We did. They were dead the whole time. Uh, that's not true, but uh, figure out oh, why okay. that's not true by listening to the Storm of Lost Rewatch podcast. Uh, this week, we actually put up a uh, <clears throat> a special that uh, Joanna and Neil, my co-hosts, uh, made for the 10th anniversary of the finale uh, last year during the pandemic, and it was uh, initially Patreon content. We put it out. We talked to, uh, you know, Jorge Garcia, Alan Sepinwall, a bunch of notable critics who were covering Lost at the time to remember 10 years ago when Lost ended. Uh, and then you could also go to, you know, fighting room, slash I lost the filler to do our lost project, which was almost 10 years oh ago God. now. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, lots of lost content from me if you want. But also make sure and leave us a review. Otherwise, this lost content will become Galaxy of Heroes content real quick. Ah. Uh, and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair and on the Little Gold Men podcast where I'm talking to my colleagues about uh, Telluride, where they went and I didn't. Uh, and Venice and lots of other film festivals that are happening right now, including good movies that I'm excited to see. Uh, and you can also hear me on Still Watching Now, which I'm going to plug, which Dave also works on. So it all uh, it's all in the family. Uh, there's a new season of Still Watching that's going to be about American crime story impeachment, which premieres this week. So you should listen to me and uh, Joanna Robinson and Richard Lawson there, too. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R. Uh, where you can share your favorite piece of Adam's family content, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of James Wan's Malignant, what adjective does James Wan turn into a horror movie next? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. I'm done.